0: I invite you then to turn with me in your Bibles as we carry on praising God by coming now to this new series in God's Word, and we're looking at the book of Judges, which may not be a familiar book to many of us, but I think you'll find it thrilling and challenging and very relevant to our society and church and situation today. So the book of Judges, obviously, in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and you'll find it on page 200 in the church uh, Bibles. Now I'm going to read a larger section. These are stories and to hear the story we need to hear the story, hear the whole story and I'm going to read a larger section from chapter 1 verse 1 to the end of this part of the story, chapter 2 and verse 5. So as we come now to the Bible, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to... Hear what it is that you have to say to us. Give me words that reflect your word faithfully and with clarity. We pray, Lord, that all the thinking of our hearts would be pleasing to you, my words would be pleasing to you. And we ask, Lord, that your word would do its work Uh, this morning in this congregation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I given the land into his hand and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek and they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Taumai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath and captures it, I will give him Aksar, my daughter, for a wife. And Othiel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksar, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him she urged him to ask her father for a field and she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Arab. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and uh, devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin, Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they left the man, let the man and all his family go, and the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Shean and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong... They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, who, the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kidron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of, of Achlab or of Aksib or of Helbar or of Aphic or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to false labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herod, in Aijalon and in Shaobim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant With the inhabitants of this land, you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, that people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Bokim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. I cannot deny it, he said. As hard as I try, my feelings will not go away. Against my better judgment. Because our stations in life are so different. And my family will despise me for marrying you. But despite all that. I must say that I do want to marry you. Uh, so Mr. Darcy. Darcy. Provides what must have been the worst ever proposal to Elizabeth (laughs) Bennet. Against the backdrop of this whole book is the covenant. And in this story of the book of Judges, in many ways better called the book of saviors, God is again and again coming to his people on one knee with a proposal. Be faithful to the covenant. And over and over again in a spiral of decay, they say no. There are highlights and moments of great victory and extraordinary stories of God's triumph for a moment. And then the spiral continues down. And as we look at the book of Judges, as I say in many ways better to be called the book of saviors, our task is not only to identify that spiral down, but listen to what God is saying that we might reverse the spiral and find again his blessing. The basic theme of the book of Judges is very obvious. If you want to spot it, just come to the very last sentence of the book uh, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As the book continues, that's a, a, a phrase that is repeated. Over and over again, chapter 17 and uh, verse uh, uh, verse 6, same phrase, in those days there was no king and the people did whatever they wanted. And then the beginning of uh, chapter 19, in those days there was no king and the people did whatever they wanted. The book of Judges is telling the story of what happens when God's rightful king, as later story in First and Second Samuel will tell us, King David is absent, is not present. There is no God authority in the person of God's anointed king. And in the story of the Bible, that kingship lands for the New Testament people of God in King Jesus. And the story tells us what happens when a society, when an individual when a church, rejects God's authority for through his anointed king, King Jesus. There's a spiral of decay. And to reverse that spiral, God sends judges. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who saved them. As I say, it's better to be called the book of saviors. They're saviour figures with all their many errors and mistakes and far from the ideal Savior, as many of them, we will see, were. But they're templates of the ultimate Savior to come. Again, not just King David, but King Jesus. And as we get into the story of the book of Judges this morning, it is telling us that God wants what is best for us. But we have to take it. The interpretation of their failure to conquer the land is given to us by the angel of the Lord who goes from Gilgal to Bokim. It's a symbolic movement. Gilgal was the place where After they'd entered the promised land, they had set up stones of remembrance to teach them over and over again, to remind them that God had brought them into that land. It was a place that symbolized victory and celebration and the call to enter into the land to go and tell people about Jesus. To win people to Christ and his kingdom. But now the angel of the Lord, or perhaps better just put, the messenger of the Lord. You don't want to think of the angel as sort of a feathery figure with wings. This messenger of God is being sent. And he goes from Gilgal to Bochim, which is the place of weeping. And the story is telling us how to go from Gilgal to Bokim, and then how to go back from the place of weeping, Bokim, to Gilgal. God wants what is best for us. He wants us to be happy, but we must be holy. He wants us to thrive, but we must accept his proposal. So first of all, the journey from Gilgau to, to Bokim or Bokim, how on earth did they end up in this pickle? Well, the angel tells us, uh, you have made a covenant with the foreign gods. You have not obeyed uh, my voice. They're covenanting with the other gods in the land and not listening to or obeying God's word. Psalm 25 verse 10 says this, All the past the Lord are love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. But they have not done that and therefore they have failed. Did you note the extraordinary comment of the narrator in chapter 1, what it says, they did not drive out, chapter 1 verse 19, they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What an extraordinary and pathetic excuse. In fact, in the book of uh, Joshua in chapter 17, it is said they will drive out the people of the land even though they have chariots of iron. And later on in the book of Judges chapter 4, Deborah and that movement of God as Deborah is one of the savior figures. God's people have victory even though their enemies have chariots of iron. But here, oh they can't do it because they have chariots of iron. They've taken their eyes off God. And looking at the challenging circumstances the new technological innovation. They have chariots of iron. But our God is the one who flung the stars into outer space. He created the whole universe as a word. And we think we can't have victory because they have chariots of iron. Or a new technological development in society. Or lack of resources or what have you. Now the problem wasn't that they had chariots of iron. The problem was they'd left behind the covenant of God. And were not listening to God's word When I talk to people these days, they often will say to me, what is going on today? Well, it's very easy. It's not complicated. What's going on today is that people and churches and society are rejecting the authority of God. There was no king, and the people did whatever they wanted The altars of our day, the idolatry of our, our day, is the idolatry of the self. It was always like that. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, said that we live in an age of the gospel of self-trust. And one little thought experiment for you, if you've seen that movie that always comes out at Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life. It was produced in 1946 and the movie It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of a a man who sacrifices himself to take care of those who are more poor than him and sacrifices himself for his family and the title of the movie of It's a Wonderful Life because in the end his work of self-sacrifice is shown to be the honorable and joyful thing. Could that movie ever be made today? I wonder if it was, instead of it being called It's a Wonderful Life, it might be called It's a Codependent Life. We are told over and over again to believe in yourself, love yourself, trust yourself, be good to yourself. Worship Yourself. That's the idolatry of our age. There was no king and the people did as they saw fit. Look where it's leaving us. Where it is leading us. Conversation with an individual who knows what the right thing is to do. But when you talk with the individual over and over again, the response is... But that's not what I want. Don't you understand? That's not what I want. The gospel of self-trust. And the sad irony is if it leads to Bokim weeping not real salvation, the gospel of self-trust. It it takes us away from Gilgal, the place of celebration and victory, to the place of Bokim. The same is true in religious circles. Of course, this is a religious place, Bokim. They sacrifice there to the Lord. They're they're weeping to the Lord. It's a religious place. The same is true in religious circles. If people say to me, not only what is going on in our society, but what is going… not only what is going on in individuals, but what is Going on in churches today, the same is the case. It cannot be a surprise that churches that marginalize the Bible don't experience God's best. You have not obeyed, or literally, you have not listened to my voice. Do you hear the note of surprised exasperation? What is this you have done? Why have you done this? He wants what is best for you. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to experience life and fullness of life. That's the covenant. What is this you've done? Why have you done this? The culture of me is a victory of sentiment over substance and image. Over imagination. And in the end, it leads to the destruction of individuals and society. But as we will see over and over again, the point of judges is not to lead us or to leave us in the pit at the bottom of the spiral, it is to call us to reverse that spiral. And in this story, to go. From Bokim back to Gilgal, to the place where, as Jesus put it uh, at the end of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has given, been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That's the land that we are to enter into. The expansion of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. How do we go from Bokim back to back to Gilgal? what well, it is to do the very reverse of what they are doing. It has struck me, my friends, and I think I'm right in interpreting it this way, and the more I thought about it this week, I'm, I'm sure I'm right, how astonishing it is that having been confronted by the angel of the Lord at Bachim, this place of weeping, which, by the way, no one quite knows exactly where it was, uh, the, uh, the professor emeritus of Hebrew called Graham Auld thought that it was probably Bethel, which is uh, named that, that, that one of the worship centers of Old Testament Israel because of a, of a passage earlier in, in, in Genesis where, where Bethel is, describes a place where there are oaks of weeping. That's certainly possible, though here they're told they call the place Bokim because they're weeping here. So it could be Bethel, it could be Shiloh, which was near Bethel where they... We're told later in Judges is where they sacrificed. We don't really know where it was. What we do know is what it symbolized. Weeping. And it's fascinating to me that having been told by the angel, here's the problem, you have uh, broken my covenant and instead making covenants with the idols, in our day the gospel of self-trust, and you're not listening to my voice, what do they do? Do they make a new covenant with God? No. Do they listen to God's word? No. What do they do? They raise up their own voices. So instead of listening to God's voice, they listen to their own voices. They have a religious pity party. You see that a lot these days too, don't you? Moaning. Complaining.
1: Woe is me,
0: woe are us. Things are so terrible. But we're not meant to stay in Bokim. We're meant to be on mission for God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the Lord says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Get back to Gilgal, enter the land, proclaim the gospel. But they have a pity party and stamp it with some kind of religious approval by making sacrifices. Sacrifices. Not God's intention for them. God's intention for them, we're told in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 6, where the author uh, of Judges, uh, we don't know exactly who is the author of Judges, traditionally thought to be Samuel, I see no reason... Uh, to think that he wasn't at least the primary mover behind his writing, but we don't know. But then the author of Judges, chapter 2, verse 6, says when Joshua dismissed the people, going back to when Joshua was still alive, what happened when Joshua dismissed the people? The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. They got back on mission. But that's not what the people of Bokim do, they sit there and weep and lament. Oh, that God would say something so harsh to us. Oh, that's so sad. And they just sort of sit there. What should they be doing? They should make a new covenant with God, commit to follow Him, and listen to His Word. Uh, The uh, Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, in a book that he wrote called Christian Leaders of the Eighteenth Century, described what took place to turn that culture around to a thriving culture a hundred years later. This is what he wrote about it. The government of the country can can lay no claim to the credit of the change, People were not yet made religious by the laws of government, nor yet did the change come from the institution of religion. Who then were the reformers of the 18th century? To whom are we indebted under God for the change which took place? The men who wrought deliverance for us a hundred years ago were a few individuals whose hearts God touched about the same time in various parts of the country. They were not wealthy or highly connected. They had neither money to buy adherence nor family influence to commend attention and respect. They were not put forward by any church party, society, or institution. They were simply men whom God stirred up and brought out to do his work without previous agreement, scheme, or plan. They did his work in the old apostolic way, by becoming the evangelists of their day. They taught one set of truths. They taught them in the same way, with fire, reality, earnestness. As men fully convinced of what they taught, the movement of these gallant evangelists shook the country from one end to another. They got back on mission. People say the church is in terminal decline. The 2020 US religious census shows that non-denominational congregations increased by 4,000 since 2010. And it numbers rose by 6.5 million in attendance in the same period. Another sociologist from Harvard says it is Moderate religion, his phrase, that is in decline. But passionate, committed stuff is, if not holding its own, growing. God wants what is best for you. He wants you to be happy. But to be happy, you need to be holy. He wants you to be saved, but to be saved, you need to trust him and not be frightened of the iron chariots, but trust God Almighty. He wants you to thrive, but to thrive, you need to have God, the Lord Jesus, as your king. Will you? Later along, uh, later in the, the story of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, uh, Mr. Darcy proposes once more, this time with a little more finesse. And Elizabeth Bennet says, Yes. And as the story of Judges unfolds, time and time again, God will come with proposals to his people. Asking them to accept him as their king. And there is such a proposal for you today. He wants what is best for you. Starts with a recommitment to him, to take him at his word. One of those great 18th century leaders was a man who rejoiced under the name of Augustus Top Lady. Uh, When Rochelle and I were still having children, I often wanted to call one of our children Top Lady. I thought it would be a good... Top Lady Moody would have been interesting. <laughs> Augustus' top lady was certainly not a, a perfect man. He wrote lots of controversial works that, and said things that perhaps he should not have said. But he was a hymn writer without parallel. Rock of Ages is what he's most famous for. But this one is, is beautiful and less well known. Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, dispel our sadness. Pierce the clouds of sinful night. Come, O source of sweetest gladness. Breathe your life and spread your light. Loving Spirit, God of peace. Great distributor of grace, rest upon this congregation. Hear or oh, hear our supplication. And there are two more verses. You can look it up on your own. But when we recommit to God and take Him at His word. He has promised. He has covenanted our best. Not always easy. Not, not, not always easy. But the blessing of His Spirit to thrive now in the midst of this pilgrim journey and then with eternal joy forever. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for this uh, book of saviors. And we pray, Lord, as we begin to look into it and look at each of these stories, that in one way or another call us to have you as our King, our Lord. And to listen to your word. We pray Lord that you by your spirit. Come Holy Ghost. Come Holy Spirit. Will grant us the faith. To trust you. And obey you and your word. Not fear the iron chariots of our lives. But to take you at your word and so find once again the sweetness, your best for us as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.